Tell me when we're on. Are we on? Okay. Well, good evening to all of you. We are here in Tennessee. Uh, the temperature is dropping. Say that for those of you who may be tuning in by the internet. We've enjoyed some beautiful weather here, but uh, over the next several days, they're saying we're going to have much cooler weather. I can say that over the last year, we've not had any of the, much of the bad weather that the rest of the nation has. We're thankful for that. Turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, and we will begin there. Revelation chapter 6. And it's so good to see all of you, and we want to welcome those who are here with us this evening by the miracle of the internet, and trust that you are well, and that if you are in this area, anywhere in the Nashville, Tennessee area, you come and visit with us. And of course, this worship, our studies on Sunday and Tuesday may be seen on YouTube, Ustream, and sermon audio video. Revelation chapter 6. I saw, verse 1, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat on that horse to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another, there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three barleys, three measures of barley for a penny, and see that you hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony whence they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, O how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. 
and beheld, and I, he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth as a fig tree casting her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? And may the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful through our Lord Jesus Christ for the great salvation that we have through faith in Him. We are thankful that we have a place to gather to consider briefly Your Word and Your instructions therein to those who have been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus, whom we believe to be the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Lord of all, and the King of kings. Pray that you'll open our understanding and help us that we might understand the things that are written as well as being aware, being made aware of some of the things befalling us in this, our present generation. We ask your blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified and that his children might be edified and that those who are not yet in the flock might come to faith and be justified. We ask it in His name for His sake. Amen. All right, let me just briefly review. Uh, we know that a lot is going on now in the world, and among many things going on in the world is the rise of uh, Islam in a way that we haven't seen for centuries, centuries. The beginning of Islam, as I told you in our last study, is marked at about 610 A.D. So that would be 600 years or so after our Lord Jesus Christ. And they used that date, 610 A.D., because that corresponds with what Islam says was the beginning of the first revelation to the prophet Muhammad at the age of about 40. Muhammad and his followers spread the teachings of Islam through the Arabian Peninsula, and we learned that there are two major denominations of Muslims. They're the Sunnis and the Shias. My wife said I got in the way last time. Is this in the way? The Sunnis and the Shias. Okay. Uh, we call these the Shiites and the Sunnis. The Sunnis comprise about 87 to 90 percent of the population of Muslims, with the Shias being about 10 to 13 percent. The Sunnis are said to have developed from Muhammad's inner circle, but the Shiites 
claim their leaders are direct descendants of Muhammad. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Almost two billion souls are now followers of uh, Muhammad and his God, uh, Allah. Muhammad was born about 570 A.D. in Mecca, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia, and he is thought to have died about 632 A.D. in Medina, which is also in Saudi Arabia. And uh, interestingly, as I think I told you, Medina developed from an oasis that was developed around 135 A.D. by the Jews. So Muhammad was born about 600 years thereabouts after our Lord Jesus Christ. Between the Sunnis and the, and the Shiites, there has been disagreements about who was the successor of Muhammad. The Sunni branch of Islam stipulates that a caliph, C-A-L-I-P-H, and that's this word right here, and that word translates as successor. That's what it means. That the caliph or the successor uh, of uh, Muhammad uh, that uh, he is the one who takes up the mantle of, uh, took up the mantle of, uh, of Muhammad, the caliph. The Shiites believe that the caliph should be chosen by an imam or a leader of uh, Islam. Now, imams are simply leaders in uh, Islam, leaders of the, uh, the uh, Muslims in their uh, uh, worship services, teachers, uh, very much like a pastor or a minister. Uh, they officiate at weddings and funerals. They develop and oversee youth programs at the mosque. And that term, imam, has been used as a title of various Muslim leaders, especially of one that they believe succeeded Muhammad as leader of the Shiite uh, Islam. Uh, they, the Shiites believe that Muhammad chose the first imam who was his son-in-law. And I mentioned this to you last time, and what was his name? His name was Ali. And that's why Cassius Clay, when he changed his name, he changed it to Muhammad. Ali, kind of a double, a double whammy there. The second and third imams were Ali's two sons. The Shiites believe that divinely inspired descendants followed those three, Ali and his two sons, so that they've been passing it down very much in the Christian circles. You have various and sundry groups like the Roman Catholic Church who believes that they are the true church and that that's been passed down from Peter to the modern day, uh, that, that Jesus gave a special position to Peter and Peter passed it down. And so each succeeding pope uh, has that same position. On the other hand, the Sunnis teach that a man named Abu Bakr, A-B-U-B-A-K-R, 
he was Muhammad's father-in-law. So you got his son-in-law for the Shiites, you got his father-in-law for the Sunnis. And they teach that Abu Bakr was selected to be Muhammad's successor and that he was the first caliph, okay? He was the first successor and that he was the first man to believe that Muhammad was Allah's special servant. He was the first man to accept Islam. And after him were three more successors that they felt like were rightful successors. So the first four caliphs were Muhammad's rightful successors. Now, this term here, uh, Sha'ada, that is the underlying principle of Islam. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his, pres- uh, his, his prophet. That's what is called the Shahada, or the confession of faithful Muslims around the world. Muslims claim to be monotheistic, which means they believe in one God. They believe that the God of Abraham is the God that they worship, that Abraham, as you know in the Bible, was in a polytheistic area. His dad was an idol maker. There were many gods. And so they believe that Abraham came to know the one true and living God that was passed down. And they believe that uh, Allah is that God that Abraham uh, worshiped. We looked last time at 2 Corinthians 11:4 about believing on another Jesus. We looked at Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, that says, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Now that brings us to where we left off last time. The Quran, which often is spelled this way by English people, K-O-R-A-N. The Muslims prefer this spelling in English, Q-U-R with a hyphen A in Quran. Okay? Now, the Quran mentions several major Bible characters. Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. So the question for us is, is the Muslim Jesus the same Jesus as the Jesus in the New Testament? The Muslim Jesus is described by the Muslims themselves. And the Muslim Jesus, as I said when we ended last time, plays a critical role in Islamic eschatology or last things, last days, or prophecy, the end of the world. There are three sources of truth for Islam. There's the Sunnah. I don't think I wrote that up here. S-U-N-N-A-H. And Sunnah is just a word that is used for the practice, the habitual practice of Islam. It's the body of traditional social legal customs of Islam. It's the practice of Islam, and that's called Sunnah. 
And of course, we got the Quran and then the Hadith. That's this right here. Those are supposed to be the actual sayings of Muhammad. They call that the Hadith, a quote from Muhammad himself. Now, according to the Quran, the word of their God, Allah, and the Sunnah, which is the very words and works of the Prophet Muhammad, comes under Hadith. I know I'm confusing you a little bit. Uh, the Sunnah is a bracket of the Hadith. Both refer to the sayings of Muhammad. Those things form the basis for all of their faith. Now, the Quran contains 114 chapters. And a chapter is called a surah, S-U-R-A, S-U-R-A. That's the word for chapter. So there are 114 surahs in the Quran. And those chapters in the Quran are not arranged chronologically, that is, by order of uh, time. They're not ordered by some story-driven sequence. They're not ordered by thematic groups. A th thematic means a theme. There's not a certain theme that one chapter follows another. Roughly speaking, they are arranged in descending order from length in the length of the book, from the longest to the shortest. There are exceptions, though, as I found out, because the very first chapter the very first surah in the Quran is one of the shortest in all of it. But generally speaking, it's, they're ordered from the longest to the shortest. Now, there are two types of surahs or chapters in the Quran. There's the Meccan uh, uh, surahs, which what would you think that would be? Well, those would be the early writings of Muhammad, and they were composed while he was in Mecca. So they're called the Meccan, M-E-C-C-A-N. And then the second category is called the Medinan, which were the later revelations given to Muhammad, because they were composed in Medina. Those were the later writings. Both of those cities, as I said earlier, Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia. The Quran, according to Islam, explores three basic themes, and here they are. They say that in the Quran, first, God's supreme power and authority. Second, the accountability of each person for their actions in this life. And thirdly, the transit nature, the temporary nature of life and the inevitability of an underlife, now th uh, of an afterlife. Those three themes, the supreme power and authority of God, the accountability of each individual, and the inevitability of an afterlife, those three themes are dealt with over and over and over again. Now, Muhammad, he's known as the prophet, he is believed to have received the Quran over a period of 22 years, beginning when he was about 40 years of age. 
And what I'm going to tell you now is very important before we get into this thing about the Jesus of the Quran. Muslims consider the Quran in its original Arabic to be the divine, actual divine word of the one and true God, Allah. And what does Allah mean? Allah means the God. The God. That's what Allah means. So they believe that the Quran in its original Arabic to be the actual divine word of the one and true God. Now, what does that mean to you? Do you, any of you read Arabic? Well, you'll never be able then to actually read and understand the will and revelation of Allah unless you can read the original Arabic as it was given. Now listen, this is important. The Muslims believe the Quran to be the verification and the completion of the revelations that were given to the Jews and that were given to the Christians centuries before. In other words, God spoke through Moses and the prophets, and then he spoke through Paul and Jesus and the apostles. And then in the sixth century, he spoke to Muhammad, and what he gave to Muhammad verifies and completes what he had given earlier to what we call the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers. Now, the Quran was not translated into English until 1649. And since that time, there have been a lot of different translations of the Quran, but all of those translations fall short of the original. In other words, any variation from the original Arabic is no longer divine and is no longer the Quran. So you can't really translate the Quran into English or into any other language. You have to be able to read it in the original Arabic. When the Bible, how many of you know Tony Costa? Most of you do. Tony comes here from time to time. He's up in Canada. And uh, he can't come down as much as he wants to now because uh, since Corona up there, when you leave Canada and you go back, you have to quarantine for a couple of weeks. Uh, and he, whether you're proved to have COVID or not, and he can't afford to do that because he's a teacher, he's an instructor uh, in schools. But uh, Tony has done a lot of debating with, uh, uh, with, with Muslims. And one thing that he, that he found out is this. When you talk to a dedicated Muslim, and let's say you talk about something that they have in the Quran that's something that's also in the Bible, in the Bible. Anytime that there is a discrepancy the Quran is held to be the correct revelation. When the Bible and the Quran differ, the Quran is held to be the correction, uh, the correct revelation from God. Muslim teachers believe and teach that both the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, and the Greek text of the New Testament have been corrupted. 
have been corrupted. They're not really trustworthy, especially if and when they differ with the Quran. If the persons or the places or the things or the doctrines in the Bible differ from what the Quran says about them, one must submit to the Quran and accept the idea that the Bible has been corrupted from its original autographs. Now, some of this information I got from what you can buy it's called the Complete Idiot's Guide to the Quran. Now, if you can bring yourself down <laughs> to buy one of those, you, it would probably help you. Here's, I'm going to quote the two authors in this, of this book, and I want to quote from them now. Here's what they say. Muslims believe that the Quran serves as a divinely delivered guide to humanity, one that supersedes all other human teachings, including the Christian and Hebrew Bibles. So it is superior to the Christian and Hebrew Bibles, the Quran, in the eyes of Muslims. Another quote, quote, Muslims also believe that the Quran, as the literal word of God, provides authoritative answers to all questions. Some of these answers are explicit, some are implicit. In interpreting the Quran, the book itself requires that believers ask those who know the al-dikhikar. That's a, a, an inspired teacher that must have, a, that you must accept that inspired teacher's interpretation of the Quran, about any of the heavenly books. If something you don't know about, you have to get a qualified person to tell you. Now, how many of you know that for centuries, for centuries in the Christian world, that the Bible was on a list of forbidden books. That is, in Christian churches, the Bible was a forbidden book. That's when Roman Catholicism ruled. And they, were, they, they satisfied the people by saying the, the Bible, would, you could go into a church building, be a Bible in there, but it would be chained to a podium with a big chain. Because, first of all, many people in, that, in those days were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, but the priest could. The priest had uh, an education. And they would tell the people, you could curse yourself if you try reading the Bible on your own. So you need an official person to tell you exactly what it means. But this is exactly the same procedure here with Islam. All right, now let's jump in exactly where we were. According to Islam, directly from the Quran, number one, Jesus was only a man. He was not divine. Number two, Jesus was a prophet. Number three, Jesus did not die on the cross, but he went directly to heaven like Elijah. Number four, because he did not die on the cross, he did not rise from the dead. Number five, because he did not die, he did not provide an atonement. Number six, he is in heaven now standing before Allah and besides Elijah. Number seven, he is waiting for Allah to send him back to the earth. Why is he coming back? Number eight, Jesus is coming back 
to straighten us all out regarding Allah and Muhammad as well as about himself. Number nine, after he returns, he will marry, he will have children, and he will be buried next to Muhammad. Now that is the Muslim Jesus. The whole eschatological framework of Islam stands upon three great signs, and those three great signs are three great men. You remember last week I talked to you about the Mahdi? Did I have that up here? Yeah. Make sure I got it right here. M-A-H-D-I. Okay, M-A-H-D-I, the Mahdi. Now the first man who will come in the end of history and will begin the ending of history is the Mahdi. He is a quote, a messianic deliverer. Who is the Mahdi? He is a messianic deliverer who will fill the earth with justice and equity. He will restore the true religion and he will usher in a short golden age lasting seven years, end of quote. The son of the 11th Imam, or he will be called the 12th Imam, uh, he will be a descendant of Muhammad. He will be an unparalleled, unequaled leader, and he will come forth out of a crisis of turmoil on the earth and take control of the world and establish a new world order. This is the Mahdi, and this is the 12th Imam. He is coming to slaughter, either to convert or to slaughter all who will not worship Allah and acknowledge Muhammad. You must convert to Islam. People who do not convert to Islam are called pigs, in dogs, and both are unclean in Islam. He is coming to establish the world-dominating kingdom of Islam. He is the twelfth imam, or what, who is called the guided one. He is the long-awaited savior of the world. And he is the establisher of the final caliphate, the destroyer of all enemies. And the world must follow him or be destroyed. He will carry on what's called, we've become familiar with this word, jihad, holy war. He will have an army which will follow him from nation to nation, mercilessly destroying all enemies of Islam. And get this now, his army will be marked by black flags upon which is written punishment. Who can tell me what the modern Iranian armies uses? They use black flags. The army in Iran, uses, they use these black flags today. If you haven't seen them on television, you probably haven't been watching the news much. His army, the Mahdi's army, marked by black flags upon which is written punishment, and that's the modern Iranian army carrying black flags, or at least they're already doing that. They, they're doing that in, in anticipation of the Mahdi. 
He will lead his army of black flags first to Israel to slaughter all the Jews, and then he will establish his rule on the Temple Mount, and he will bring great wealth and happiness, and everybody will love him, and no one will speak of him anything that is derogatory, uh, wicked, or evil, or disagreeable. Now, how will the Mahdi accomplish all this? The Mahdi, how will he accomplish all this? First of all, and this is all in the Quran, you'll have to get your Quran and read it yourself if you doubt what I'm telling you, or you can get that book that I told you about, The Idiot's Guide for the Quran. He will make a peace agreement with the Jews in Israel for seven years. This is according to the Quran. He will reign, his reign will last for seven years, during which time he will establish Islam throughout the world. He will come riding on a white horse as is described in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, and the Quran references Revelation 6, 1. Well, in the Quran, they make a reference to the book of Revelation in our Christian Bible, and in verse 6, uh, uh, chapter 6, that we just read it right here. It says, I saw a white horse. Now, how many of you, when you read the chapter, regardless of the specifics of eschatology, all of us have different ideas and different views about what's going to happen. But here in this chapter, regardless of what you, your eschatological position is, pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, whatever, who is the person here on this white horse? If you read this, this is not Christ on this white horse. This is the Antichrist on the white horse. The white horse is the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 6. I saw a white horse, and he that sat on him, he had a bow, and he had a crown given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That is not the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the, the Antichrist. Saddam Hussein, as I told you, he had murals all over Baghdad depicting the Mahdi with a sword in his hand to destroy all the infidels. And the Mahdi will discover when he comes, he will discover, according to the Quran, he will discover hidden scriptures near the Sea of Galilee. He will dis discover some gospels and a Torah, or Torah, from the law. And they will be the true scriptures. You see, what we have there, the Quran tells us, Muhammad teaches us, that what we have today as our Old Testament, New Testament, are corrupted revelations. They're not, they're not accurate. They're not true. I told you earlier that uh, Muslims believe that Muhammad, when he gave the Quran, that that was a verification and a clarification and a completion of the earlier scriptures that had been given to the Jews uh, and given to the Apostle Paul and the Christians. But we've, we've corrupted it. And so it's been corrupted. And so he's going to discover the true scriptures and these hidden scriptures will be used to show the Jews and the Christians 
that they were wrong all along because they had spurious or false or erroneous writings. And he will have, the Mahdi will have supernatural power. The description of the Mahdi is precisely described in the Quran and in the Sunnah, that is the pr private personal sayings of Muhammad, as the Bible describes the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. Let's look over Revelation chapter 13, just a minute. <clears throat> We've read um, chapter 12, uh, a little bit of it Sunday. And here they talk about a great beast rise up out of the sea. Generally the sea is, is Revelation 13.1. Sea is usually uh, allegorical for humanity. And a beast rose up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his head the name of blasphemy. Now you can't have any question about who that is. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet was the feet of a bear, and his mouth is the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him authority and power. Now who's the dragon? Go back to chapter 12. Go back to Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 9. And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. No question about who the dragon is. Okay, so this beast is empowered by the dragon. The devil, Satan, is giving power to this, to this beast. Uh, once he's described here as a, a leopard, his feet like feet of a bear, his mouth is mouth of a lion, all of those are symbolical of various things about his power. His power and his seat in great authority. And... Uh, it says in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, verse 4, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy, and power was given to him to continue for forty-two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man has an ear, let him hear. Okay? So that's the Antichrist. No question about that, okay? The description of the Mahdi in the Quran is precisely described in the Quran and in the sayings of Muhammad, just as the Bible describes the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation chapter 13. The Bible description of the Antichrist in Revelation 6 is actually referred to, as I said earlier, by the Quran, that person on that white horse in Revelation 6 is referred to by the Quran as the Mahdi. And any study that you do, you discover all the details given by the Bible and the Quran that they match up perfectly 
but one of them is referring to the Antichrist. The Bible's Antichrist is Islam's Mahdi. The Bible's Antichrist is Islam's Savior. Okay? Now, the second person, the Mahdi, is Jesus, the Jesus of the Quran. So you have to remember, Jesus is not the Mahdi, and the Mahdi is not Jesus. Jesus is coming back, but he's not coming back to rule the world. This is all according to the Quran, but he's coming back to assist the Mahdi. Okay? He will come back as a radical Muslim, and he will arrive at a minaret near Damascus, Syria. And he will return holding the wings of two angels who fly him down. And he'll come back to meet the gathering army of the Mahdi in the east. And he will acknowledge the Mahdi as his Lord, and he will pray to him. He will make a pilgrimage to Mecca. He will worship Allah, and thus he will lead all of the Christians who will follow him to reject their notion of himself as Jesus, as God, and as the only Savior and the only way to God. Uh, he will reveal himself for what he really is, just a man and a prophet. And he will help establish worldwide Sharia law, thus becoming the greatest Muslim evangelist ever. He will be the final witness on the day of judgment against all non-Muslims. And Christians everywhere will affirm that they have been wrong, that the gospel is wrong, that the New Testament is wrong, that he didn't die and therefore he didn't rise and he did not offer himself as an atonement for sins, the sins of his people, and he will correct, he's coming back to correct all those misinterpretations and all those misrepresentations. From their literature, they say he will shatter crosses. Now, when you, people come in here and they see that up there, what is that a symbol of, regardless of how you feel about crosses inside of a church building? That's a symbol uh, of Christ historically and uh, the gospel. So to say he will shatter crosses means he's going to destroy the church. He's going to destroy everything that symbolizes anything like that. Uh, he's going to kill pigs. He's going to abolish the tax on non-Muslims. Many people do not know. It probably, I'm just guessing here, I don't have proof in front of me, but I would say over 80% of the original slaves that were sold into slavery that came to America were, were Muslims. Islam has had slavery as long as they've been here. And most of those first slaves were Islamic. They were Muslims, and they were sold by Muslims. They might have been selling them to the white men, but they were black men selling their own brothers. When, when this Jesus of the Quran comes back, listen to this now. This is strange. He will kill 
the Islamic Antichrist. Now, who would that be? That'd be our Christ. Their Christ, which is our Antichrist, will kill our Christ, which is their Antichrist. And then he will die, and he'll be buried next to Muhammad. Well, our time is gone. It flies by, doesn't it? <laughs> Father in heaven, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us to stand upon the truth as you have revealed it to us in your word. And may the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.